Well, hello, Brent. Hey, Mark. We're here to talk theology. Yeah, you could say that. And I am your apt pupil. And we thought, why don't we record this and see how it sounds? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes I definitely do badger you with things that I'm trying to learn, trying to study, you know? And I, I think it's a good exercise to figure out things together, you know? Right. Talk about things that I'm learning about. Talk about things you're learning about. Let me set a little background for anyone who listens to this. Brent, are you someone who's gone through divinity school? No. Are you someone who spends 100% of their time every day digging into theological things because it's your job? 100%? No, that's definitely okay. not me. Uh, are you someone, by your own admission, who gets kind of obsessed with certain topics and goes very, very deep and then... Um, learns more about those things by sharing those things. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely, I think you kind of know. Yeah. yeah. And I've known you for 20, 22 years. Probably, yeah, I think it's something like As a matter of fact, I met you in, of all places, Guadalajara, Mexico. You and your mm-hmm. lovely wife, Christine, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. were there working for YWAM, and I was there going to language school, and we met in an underground movie theater yeah. in Guadalajara. We met in a hole in the ground. It, yeah, very strange underground movie theater, kind sure. of in the middle of a highway, which was odd. And we became fast friends. And over the years, this is something that's been absolutely consistent with you. And hey, I'm just going to kind of throw you under the bus here. Yeah. I don't know how long this obsession with mysterious, strange theology, which is kind of what I call it, because my conversations with you when we've gone on walks as middle-aged men who can't bring ourselves to run, but we can certainly walk, yeah. have have oftentimes, it's disturbed me, some of the stuff you bring up. Right. And honestly, honestly, that's my initial reaction sometimes is what the heck is Brent talking about? Mm-hmm. And as some, someone who's grown up in the church my entire life and, and considers myself pretty open-minded, yeah, uh, like things about... Um, uh, the many gods of the Bible that I just mm. glossed over and didn't mm-hmm. pay attention to. You, mm-hmm. you were getting really deep into Michael Heiser, and then, mm-hmm. and 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 as you do, someone mm-hmm. will pique your interest, and then you'll just go down the mother loving rabbit hole of yeah. the internet. Yeah, I fall in. <laughs> you do, and it's just like deep. what the heck. Yeah, and we'll go on these walks. Yeah. You know, we we do a four mile walk, and you know, for an hour, and sometimes not always, but sometimes it's just. I mean, you basically hold court the entire time um, and uh, dominate the conversation with these, some of these directions you're going and some of the people you're engaging on the internet. And it, it, is, yeah. it is not insufferable. It is fascinating. And it has improved and increased my faith, even when I'm like, nah, I don't know about that. So <laughs> let's just, now that we've set the table a little bit, w- w- are we doing all of Revelation you know, I, I don't know, but I mean, I would love to, honestly, at some point cover all the aspects of Revelation, just because it's a scary thing. And you said, you said earlier, you were talking about, like, my fascination. Well, I, you know, going back in my history, I've always been fascinated by this stuff, right? But there came a time when I became sort of unable to push things further because I was really not satisfied and I was also unable to find answers for things that I was looking for. You know, my pastor didn't have the answer. The, the Bible school I went to didn't have the answers. 
you know, I'm, I'm perplexed on some of these issues, right? Like, and, and we can, and you can say, that's things like, what's the end of the world? What is, what is eschatology? You know, what's, what's, when is the end of the world? When is a rapture? What are all these fun words and things like that, that people like to throw in into their Christianese, you know, talk about the end of the world. That's okay. It's a fascinating topic in and of itself, but I definitely drifted in and out of that. And at some point I just left it alone completely. Well, okay. And I think lots of Christians do, but let's just dive right in. I mean, what I, the basis for this is often is your pleasure in upsetting the apple cart of my theology. And I know it. I know you like to push my buttons. Yeah. I don't think you're doing it meanly. I think you're doing it because it's 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 a journey that you're on. But let's let's yeah. jump in. I don't think it's interesting for us to talk about something that everyone's like, yeah, 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 yeah. So what? Whatever. Uh, and 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 maybe some some people who are listening to this will say, oh yeah, I mean yeah, I kind of took that at face value. But what I do know is most church environments, most Christian friend circles, and and neither you nor I, Brent, are would be considered monsters of evangelistic Christian faith no. or theology. We're kind of normal no. people. We're, yeah. I we, st- care, we care very deeply about our relationship with God. Yeah. But what is interesting is, you know, uh, unpacking uh, something, and I have no idea what you're going to talk about today. Well, I Something thought, unusual. Yeah. Okay, so what is it? Well, today I thought we'd probably try to explore the uh, the identity of the two witnesses. Okay. And and I don't know if everyone... I've, I've read Left Behind, so I know exactly who these people are. <laughs> yeah. Rayford Steele fully Ray... educated me. That is Rayford Steele. He's one of the witnesses. No. Was he really in that book? No, he's not in that book. <laughs> I don't actually really know. Have you never read the Left Behind series? I did I did come to a, a an understanding of the Left Behind series accumulating somewhere in the neighborhood of 65 million books sold or something like that well some incredible number thank goodness so obviously this type of material is popular right or, yeah i mean it sells books everyone everyone wants to know where we're headed or Our, they want to argue with the bible's version of that right i i chose the two witnesses because it was something that, that when i was a small a small lad growing up they, they the the identity of these two witnesses really fascinated me. And I don't know why, but it just did. But I know, And I know it's fascinated a lot of other people. But I thought, why don't we try to figure out who they might be? Okay. Not, maybe, maybe it's a stretch to say who they are. But we can, I think we can explore enough scripture to probably come up with a very good answer. And that's an answer that a lot of people probably aren't going to like. Okay, then just jump right in. All right. So why don't we why don't we go to Revelation 11 because that's where the two witnesses are. And I'm going to read a little bit from there. I'm going to say I was given now this is a Revelation 11:1, 1, right? I was given I'm going to start from the beginning. Uh, I was given a read like a measuring rod and I was told go measure the temple of God and the altar and its worshipers but exclude the outer court don't measure it because it has been given over to the gentiles. That's kind of not sounding so good at the moment, isn't it? Let's keep going. Um, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. 
42 months are going to trample on that city. Seems like three and a half years to me. That's a long time, perhaps. I don't know. Let's see. And I will appoint my two witnesses. He's going to appoint his two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They're humble people, that's for sure. And they are, and this is the key part about the two witnesses, right? They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. They stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay. Why are people fascinated with the two witnesses? It's probably not for that part necessarily, because that didn't sound too exciting. What people really like about the two witnesses is the stuff that follows. If anyone is to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up heaven, the heavens so it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have the power to turn the waters into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Who doesn't want that kind of power? Let's be honest. I mean, I don't want that kind of power. I don't want to be the two witnesses because they get beat up pretty bad. If you continue reading, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, overpower, and kill them. So God's appointed two witnesses ultimately get overpowered and killed. Okay. Now, Mark, there's a lot of things going on in here. We read a whole bunch of scripture. Poorly, I might add. Maybe not. Maybe that wasn't my best. Scripture reading voice? Might not have been, yeah. But anyways, I want to kind of focus on the identity. And where do I get the identity? Where, what are the clues to their identity? And as I see it, John, who wrote this lovely book of Revelation, gives us their identity. And their identity are, is the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And that's basically all we have to go on as far as we know. Okay? So we need to start tearing apart Scripture to find out what we can figure out about the olive trees and the two lampstands. Okay? So in Scripture, in our Bibles, where would John be pulling something like this from? Do you think any of this exists in the Bible somewhere well the the iconography or the imagery of lampstands and olive trees yeah, yeah. all th- all through the gospels okay and i believe in the old testament so let's let's go into the lampstands first yeah let's, the seven let's, churches let's leave the olive trees okay the seven churches and and we see the seven churches in the beginning of revelation there are seven churches there's seven letters there's in in revelation 1 you've got jesus standing in the middle of seven lampstands. Okay. What do lampstands, what else do they represent? Where did lampstands come from? Temples. And, temples, yeah, good. And and this is what I really like about diving in on this part, is lampstands, their purpose seems kind of obvious, you know, to me. They were present in the tabernacle that was constructed in a specific way. You get that in Exodus 25, 31. The, the lampstands were present in the holy place. That's where we find lampstands. Okay. And the purpose of the lampstand is to do what you might think it is, to provide light. Right? Now, some interesting facts about lampstands. They are made of solid gold. Okay? So the finest, purest material. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in 
the temple that the Jews constructed, right, was you had the Holy of Holies as, as, as the place where the Spirit of God was dwelling. You had the Holy Place, which was the area just out, just after the Holy of Holies. So as you were coming into the temple, you would come into the Holy Place, right? And you would see these lampstands to the right and to the left of you. And the purpose of the lampstands, and by the way, the lampstands had to always be lit. That was the priest's job. They had to keep that lampstand lit all of the time. And there really was, the, the, the purpose of the lampstand was to light the path in front of it. That was, that was the purpose. And this is, the lampstand itself is, is that famous Jewish looking. A menorah. A menorah. That's what it is. And it has the seven little whoop, whoop, whoop things, you know, coming out. Has to be lit all the time. It's made of gold. And John uses that to describe churches. Now, I wonder, knowing what you know about the lampstands so far, are you making any connections with lampstands and churches at all in any sort of way? I mean, they're the light. They're bringing the light to the world. I that's, mean, they're not right. the light of the world. That would be Jesus Christ. But they're not they the light of the world. are right. in partnership, in commission with Jesus, uh, the mission on earth to make disciples, to um, tell that story, to help usher in as a co-worker with Christ, reconciliation to God among men. Um, some more imagery is you're not supposed to put your light under a bushel. That's <laughs> maybe, true. Maybe that's a different, maybe that's a different. Is that a song? Uh, it's this little light of mine, right. and I am going to let it shine. Okay, so yeah, so what's the point here? I mean, you're uh, here's some history. You're saying, hey, lampstands were in temples, and I believe they were in, maybe even in the Holy of Holies. I don't know. Uh, they were used to describe the seven churches. Mm -hmm. uh, churches are held accountable. Yeah. And now all of a sudden they're here in the end. Uh, end time? Yeah. We're, well, we're gathering some facts about what lampstands are, what they do. Okay. Why And why John might say, grab this lampstand out of the temple and suddenly make it some incredibly relevant piece of hardware, Okay, let's say. But you're, you're right. What you were hitting on before is sort of trending in the right direction. Christ is the light of the world. John 8, 12, verses 9 through 5. You'll read about Christ being the light of the world. Jesus is the true light that gives light to everyone. That's John 1, 9. Jesus also does something else as we get into this. Jesus calls his church the light of the world in Matthew 5, 14. Ah, that's interesting, isn't it? Christ is abiding in the church, John 1, 4, and 5. We learn about that. So Christ is in the church. He calls his church the light of the world. A Christian who is shining with the light of Christ will live a godly life, 1 Peter 2.9, right? In the same way, let your, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5.14, okay? That's basically what we're talking about here. But what I want to say is, is that, that, that is, is substance of the lampstand. That is, that is what we're talking about, but... I want to bring in some more imagery about lampstands that we find in the Bible. 
And if you go to Zechariah 4, we read something kind of interesting there. We read here, Zechariah says, then, then the angel, and we're picking the story up and kind of in the middle of some other things that are happening in Zechariah's life. But anyways, the angel who talked with me returned to me, woke me up like someone awakened from sleep and asked me, what do you see? He said, I answered, I see a gold lampstand with a bowl on the top. Okay, so this is a little different than the lampstands that we were just talking about because this particular lampstand has a bowl on top of it. Okay, a bowl at the top of this and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. There are two olive trees by it, one on the right and one right of the bowl and one on the other on its left. Did you just see that? I, I hear what you're saying. I don't understand the significance of it. Well, I think the significance here is, is that we're seeing a lampstand, and I'm also seeing two olive trees, which we haven't talked about yet, but we know that two olive trees were part of the description of who the two witnesses are. All right? Okay. So here we are. Right, yeah. So, so clearly, John is pulling some imagery from Zechariah 4, and I can tell you that. Because if I go down just a little further in Zechariah, uh, let me just read this right here. I answered, see the golden lampstand, the bowl on top of it? This, yeah, we read that part. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He, he, needs some, he needs some answers himself because he's seeing something weird. Although you'd think Zechariah might be familiar with some of these things. Maybe not the olive trees. But, uh, well, you know, I don't know. We'll see. The Lord came to me. No, that's not where I wanted to start. And I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? I asked him again, what are these two olive branches beside the two golden pipes that pour out golden oil? He says, you don't know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. I said, what are these? So he said, these are my two anointed who serve the Lord of all the earth. Okay. So that little quote right there, these are the anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. And you'll see in Revelation that John slightly changes that language, right? And I think that's what we also see in Revelation 1 is John pulling imagery from Zechariah 4. He's taking these lampstands and he's repurposing them as the church. And as we were reading, the churches are the light of the world. They bring light into the world. You as a believer bring light into the world, okay? John now tells us in Revelation that churches are lampstands. Churches are made of gold, pure gold. The Bible also tells us is that God is refining us, right, as pure silver and pure gold. Why, why is God refining us into these precious metals, as it were? Do you know why? Um, why is God refining us into precious metals? To be worthy of our role within the kingdom of God, to uh, he's burning away the dross and the impurities. Because, I like that word. Well, you know, that is the nature of sanctification. Ultimately, we have been made righteous, but there's an ongoing making of us to be more righteous. Yeah. That's a weird way of putting that. Well, yeah, maybe. But that, that's essentially right. The, the lampstands are made of gold, Believers are being refined into gold, into, in, into precious metals, basically. And the purpose of the refining process is that, just to pull out impurities in the metal. 
to make gold as pure as possible. And, and that's how our lives should be. We should be as pure as possible. So it's, it is interesting that John chooses to use lampstands in this case and represent lampstands as, well, they're golden. And together, you know, as believers come together as the body of Christ in the church, we make up a golden lampstand. Okay, I'm going to short, as I often do yeah. when we talk about this stuff, yeah. you are famously burying the lead. I know you're getting somewhere with this. But we're, 20, we're 22 minutes into this, oh and we got gosh. some great background and I like what's what what's the big reveal here? Like why why does any of this matter to me? Now listen, I know I should care about the history and the context, and I and I and I know that my understanding of who these two witnesses are will be enhanced by knowing all this background. But but I also find myself as an as an average Joe, <laughs> as an average Christian who mm-hmm. who earnestly wants to know God better, but knows my limitations. I find myself impatiently saying, so what? <laughs> so what? How does this affect and change my life yeah. or change how I behave? Tell me. I'm begging you. I, I think I think it changes how you behave because, you know, you as a believer in Jesus Christ, right, you were part of his church. And I think you'd want to know what the purpose of his church is, right? You'd want to know. Well, I feel like I do know that. Yeah. I don't maybe have a super refined understanding no. of what it is. I know I don't think you need a refined one, but but I'm saying is John makes some interesting imagery about it. Why is he making such a fuss about it? Why is he pulling all this stuff? I think that's a good question to ask. And and you see those seven seven golden lampstands with Jesus standing in the midst of them. And I like the description that you get of Jesus. His eyes are a flame. His face is like the full sun. He's light. Right, he clearly cares about the role of his church yes. in the world he created. This is true. Uh, to fulfill the mission that he came to earth to fulfill. That's right. right? We, we are partners with him in this. Um, we are to know and enjoy him and make disciples. And, and he's purifying us. Mm-hmm. I mean, mainly because in, in the process of reconciling us to God... God ultimately has no sin in him and we are fully made righteous through uh, Christ the man. Uh, and so we can we can stand in the court of God here and in the future with full confidence, but there's still this ongoing work of refinement, right? So how does this relate to the two the two witnesses in well, the end times? Like we, we there's this big kerfuffle to put mm-hmm. it mildly mm-hmm. at some point. And and I'm just here's what I think the two witnesses are or yeah. who I've who I've um and I'm really not being coy when I tell the, our dear listeners I, I I mean I knew that this was one of the topics you might talk about I really don't know where you're going with this I think you might have talked to me about this the other day so I am super curious <laughs> I always thought I was like well, okay who who is who are these two it's Moses and Elijah says right ex Christian evangelist or I think that was um, in the Left Behind series Left Behind series, right yeah. but I know you're gonna pull something out of your hat here and you're going to tell me something that's contrary to what I've always believed. See, we didn't even get into that. But yeah, you're right. A lot of people think the identity is Moses or Elijah. Yeah. And they'll say, well, why Moses? Well, because, and why Elijah? Well, well, because a lot of the things... Because they're just really good dudes. They're really, they were solid bros, let's be honest. 
and and there's there's stuff around that too, right? Like uh, the things that these two witnesses are capable of, what they do, sort of sounds like things that Elijah did. Sounds like things Moses did. They 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 did some of these things, except and and the reason why people like to choose Elijah as one of the targets is because well, he never died. He never died. He was raptured. Some people like to use that term. I don't know. Yeah. He was taken away in a whirlwind of fire. Sounds pretty exciting, let's be honest. A- additionally to that, there's the moment of transfiguration that occurs in the Gospels, that's recorded in the Gospels, right? And Jesus goes up on the mountain, he's transfigured before his disciples, and who appears with him? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, right. And you got to say to yourself, well, let's just explore that for a quick second, but why would Moses and Elijah even be there? Counsel. Counsel. I don't know. Real quick on that one. Elijah represented the prophets. Moses represented the law. Jesus represents the fulfillment of the of the law and the prophets in one person. Okay. That's why and there this was is a transfiguration. How s- someone interpreted those guys being there. That's well, your that, interpretation. This is my interpretation. Of your own design, or did you read this somewhere? No, I've read this somewhere. I think I think this is I think this is the meaning for the purpose of the transfiguration. Okay, right. Yeah, I've never I've, I've probably heard that before, but I don't remember hearing that. Well, maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. But anyways, that's the idea with that. And then other people will say, "Well, okay, fine." Elijah was also prom- prophesied to. I think it was Joel, where it said, uh, "I forget exactly where it was." To be to be completely blunt with you, Mark. Oh, that's okay. But to the best of your memory, he we are we're reminded that that Elijah was supposed to return. He was supposed to come back someday. That's that's and 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 to this day, Jewish people there's there's a funny Jerry Seinfeld skit where they're sitting around they you know they do the Passover thing and they set the the empty chair that they have there at their Passover feast and who's that for? Just in case Elijah shows up. Mm-hmm. That's that's the thing. But it turns out that Jesus tells us, well, in fact, that the, the angel Gabriel came to, John, came to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. His name is also Zechariah. And, 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 the, and the message is, is he told him that he would be like, he would come in the spirit of Elijah. And in fact, Jesus also tells us later on that, um, that John had come all right, he'd already come, and he'd come in this. He'd he'd come through John the Baptist in the spirit. John the Baptist had come in the spirit of Elijah, and Jesus himself confirmed that and said, "So Elijah's already come. Basically, you missed him. It was John the Baptist. You killed him. He's dead. No, he wasn't dead at that point yet, when Jesus identified him that as that way. But anyways, that's the point. The other one was is Enoch. Enoch is another mm-hmm. person in the Bible who never died." So a lot of people also say Elijah and Enoch just for the express purposes that they never died. Okay, that's plausible. Okay, the two witnesses. But the, put, put me out of my misery. You're what, talking what, about the two witnesses, so you're saying, well, those are the guys that. people Well, no, like I'm to just do. telling you traditionally, right? What I've thought it was, but knowing how our conversations go, I right. do not think you're going to confirm my beliefs. So going by Revelation's definition of lampstands, if I read in Revelation 11 about the identity of the two witnesses, they're confirmed as the two lampstands. 
And he's quoting Zechariah, they stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Okay, so now if I'm just to say that two lampstands, does that, would you, what if I read it like this and I said, the two churches, they stand before the Lord okay, of the whole earth. Okay, and I would say, which of those seven churches are the two churches? <laughs> right. I think that's a great question. Okay, and first of all, another thing. Okay, I get your, your logic, your yeah. rationale. Yeah. Um, nobody really knows what's going on in Revelation. As much as our dime store preachers or our highly paid apologists uh, claim they do, mm-hmm. nobody fully... I mean, well, there's not a lot of agreement. There's some agreement. So... Well, I, I will say this much about Revelation. There is and there are very strong reoccurring themes that happen over and over again. And, and the cycle with which they happen over and over again is a cycle of threes. And you do see this through the book of Revelation. You see the same events being talked about over and over again, at least three times, using slightly different language, slightly okay, different terms. Okay, what are those three well, things. that's a that's another topic. Okay, okay. Altogether. So let's get let's get back let's get back to these two guys. So I, I I've, or or two churches. These two churches. Okay. So I see where you're going. Right. I see why you would say that. Right. I still, I really want to have some tangible life application here because I'm a selfish person who uh, wants to do more than just ponder. Oh my gosh. Um, esoteric things. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so. So there's two churches. Yeah. And what's this? First of all, before we name who those churches are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the the next thing would be, how do you know which two churches these are, and how certain are you that the Bible's talking about churches? Well, like I like we just went over this. We literally. Well, I know. Went- I hear what you're saying. You're saying how basically what you're saying is how could yeah. Lampstands mean something different in this in this context. It's clear to me and to many others. Okay, so I was going to ask how many others agree with you. Ma- many other people agree okay. with me. All right, now. Well, and that's based on. And again, not that I don't take you seriously, Brent, but I do. <laughs> I am looking for some consensus uh, here. <laughs> there are. I'm not. I'm not just an echo chamber. It does require study, number one. I mean, I think if you're genuinely interested in Scripture, you're going to have to dive in at some point. And, and you're not going to be able to do it on your own. Okay, and by the way, yeah. uh, I, don't, I hope your employer is not listening to this, but I happen right. to know while you're working, you have lots of information pouring in your other ear hole oh. or one of your eye holes. There are, there are times when I can invest some some study and investigation. Yeah, and so that's where this is kind of coming from. You get all jazzed about this stuff. Yeah. And so I am interested. Yeah. I, I used to spend, and, and, I, and I would say that I, you know, I spend a good portion of my time wasting my life away doing nonsensical things. But, you know, lately as I've gotten older, maybe that's a thing of getting older. Yeah, and you're 75. That's true. And so as I've gotten older, I've realized... He's, he's not 75. I'm not 75. Uh, but, you know, as I've gotten older, you kind of realize I really enjoy some of this other stuff, and I really find that investing in this pays off so much more nicely, yeah. you know, in life than other things that I could waste my life Well, doing. I'm definitely benefiting from it, right, and I want to know where we're going with you this. You want to know so badly um, about what's going on with this that it's, I can see it chewing you up inside. Well, we did. We So 
if I'm if I'm taking Revelation and I'm saying this, these two lampstands, they're relevant, they're important. We saw imagery of it in in Revelation one. We saw seven letters. We didn't read this stuff, but the seven letters get sent out, okay, uh, to to this uh, the seven churches, who who are known as the seven lampstands. So I'm going to say that that we have the identity, at least half of the identity described here. We we think we're talking about churches as far as the identity of the two witnesses. Now, why are the two witnesses important? These guys come on the scene, and that's what's written up above, right? God's saying measurement. And sometimes when God asks people to get a measuring rod out, it's usually for some form of destruction. Some kind of bad thing is going to happen. That's basically the idea in this case. And I believe that this particular thing here, where we're measuring the temple, is found in—I don't have it here in my notes, but I think it's in Isaiah or Ezekiel, where we also see, again, similar— um, descriptions. I think it's Ezekiel where they measure the temple. I could be wrong. Cut this out. You figure it. You figure it out. Um, but I'm not going to cut it out. Yeah, don't cut it out. Exclude the other coat. Measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles in this case would be um, that are surrounding the temple, the altar of God. These, these aren't good people. They're trampling the outside of the holy city they're surrounding the outside of the holy. City. This is so we're we're not in a good way here as far as things go in the holy city, uh, of God's holy city, right? So, anyways, so now, so so the the arrival of the two witnesses is significant for what's about to happen, and there is wrath and judgment that these witnesses are pouring out on the earth. So it is a very interesting thing that's occurring at this particular time because as you read through the rest of Revelation eleven, you're going to get an understanding about an order of events, and again, an order of events that seems to be re- reoccurring over and over as a theme through Revelation. So let's get to the other side of this, because I know you're just you're jumping up and down over there. Your face is turning red. I don't know if you know that. Is it really? Yeah, you're getting... Your eyes are I'm, bulging. No, I'm just... Maybe I'm a little warm. Yeah, you might be. So let's go... Just Let's just accept the fact... The fact. You like how I said that? Yeah. Let's go with the idea that the lampstands represent churches. Well, what about the olive trees? And we did see in Zechariah a mention of two olive trees. And in that case, I'm going to speed up a little bit. Those two olive trees, specifically, he's talking about Zerubbabel as one of the olive trees. And Joshua, and you'd have to go back and read in, in, in Zechariah to get that. But these, the, the, in this case, the two olive trees are likened to and represented by Zerubbabel, and Joshua. And Zerubbabel is a significant figure as he has a lot to do with the foundation, the restoration, and the rebuilding of the temple. Remember, Zechariah is the last prophet. This is it. This is the last book. And God's not going to speak to his people again for like 800 years or something like that. It's going to be okay. a long time, right? So this is this is kind of the last revelation you're going to get from uh, from the Old Testament. Because, you know, let's face it, things haven't gone that well for you know the Israelites and their relationship with God. So in that, we did, we did notice that the two olive trees are in there. Well, if you go to Romans 11, and you go down to Romans 11.25, we're going to get an interesting description from Paul. Paul is going to start to repurpose some things for us and describe th- some things for us. Um, and I want to read that part of it to you. Let's see. Maybe 25 is a little bit too far down. Anyways, 11.22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God's sternness to those who fell. Um, let me just go down just a bit more. 
And if you, and if they do not pers- persist in unbelief. Now, Paul is talking about Jewish people here. All right, I'm going to read in Romans 11:17. That's where I'm going to start. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, you, Mark, though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, I want you to think about this. Don't consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. Other branches, okay? If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Okay, so you're thinking about this tree. I know, an olive tree, because you're a wild olive shoot, Mark. I am a wild olive shoot. And you're really happy about that because some natural branches, I'm using some language here, were broken off so that you could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. Oh, these branches were broken off because of unbelief. These are the Israelites, the Jewish people we're talking about. That's what Paul's referencing here. And if you stand by faith, do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not... Why would he spare those wild guys? That's true. Of which I am one. So consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. Can I make my own little contribution here? All right, if you want to. I just got done reading the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, and I'm reading it to my boys right now. And there's this one section where it talks about how gentle and lowly, which is straight out, that's vernacular, straight out of the Bible, that God is for the penitent, the repentant, not the perfectly behaved. As a matter of fact, if you look who Jesus was a minister to, it wasn't the beautiful, well-comported people. And how harsh God is to the prideful, self-righteous, non-penitent this people. And that, that basically is said right here again. Yeah. That's good. It's That's a really story. good. It is. Um, okay. But you don't want to be cut off. That's the I main thing. I do not. And if they do not persist in unbelief, who's they? They will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. So the natural branches which were cut off, right— and if they don't persist in unbelief, you can think about modern-day Jewish people coming to Jesus, okay? They can be grafted back in. He's able to graft them in again. After all, you were cut. You, Mark. Just you. No, I not just you. All so of us. So lonely. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, grafted in into a cultivated olive tree. I love that idea of grafting in. It happens all the time in uh, orchardists, Right. Apple trees, these other or, things. Orchardists, is that? What's the technical term? I, I don't you, know. you mean orchardists are people who Co- cultivate it's orchards? A, it's a, well, a, a, I don't know. I don't know either. I don't. I don't. I'm. A, I'm. I'm I mean, sorry to all those people out like there. Like honey crisps, yeah, and, and and cosmic crisps. They cut and, branches off other trees, other apple trees, and they graft them. Oh, into they probably others. do something at the seed level, but I get your point. I'm amazed that they had this technology back then. After I think all, it's really old technology, by the way, because apparently. when I, I lived in Mexico for a while and I lived on this uh, outreach base. And one of the things the guy who lived there all the time was doing his, he was making new varietals of chili peppers by grafting, grafting. branches onto chili pepper plants. So what you're telling me is it's real. 
After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, let's think of Zechariah's olive trees, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own uh, olive tree? Okay. How many olive trees is that, Mark? I'm, I don't know. You're two. Two, yeah. One, two. So one natural wild olive tree and one cultivated olive tree? Well, I would say there's two cultivated olive trees, but he, it, it, what Paul says is the natural branches get grafted into their own olive tree, exclamation point. Okay. I feel like we're getting closer to the big reveal. Right. So if you think about what Paul's telling us here, he says that you were a wild olive branch and you got grafted in you got taken from your wild unruly right state you were not a believer you were not accounted as part of the 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 israelites um blessing you you were not a chosen person right the the chosen people were the the israelites right if you think before before jesus came and and in fact even while jesus was there you know, Gentiles were the gross. You don't, you don't, you don't associate with that. That's gross. They're 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 a wild olive shoot in this case. That's how Paul is describing you. You're outside the walls, but you get cut out from that. And you get brought in. You get brought into this beautiful, and 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 inserted into this beautifully cultivated olive tree that is being nourished from the root. Right, just like in that picture in in Zechariah four, you get. You're supported by this by this root, and th- these roots are have their their root down in God, right? That's where that's where we're getting our source from, our power from, right? And it's it's so interesting that you get crafted into your own cultivated olive tree, but then the natural branches who come back and don't persist in unbelief. So these the these Jewish people who are under a partial hardening right now, as Paul tells us later in, in Romans eleven, he says. He says, they get grafted into their own olive tree. And so now I have, in the New Testament, a description of two olive trees represented by Jewish people and Gentile people. Okay, so now I have my two olive trees. And if I go back to Revelation, I'm going to read and I'm going to say, they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. If I'm using the Bible to define itself as I understand these terms and where these terms might be coming from, they're again repurposed, right? And likely repurposed into the identity of Jewish and Gentile identities as far as the olive trees are concerned. And we know that these people, when people are together and people uh, people constitute the church, so now I have two people groups representing two different churches. That's a that's a very okay, interesting so, way for John to represent the identity of these two witnesses. Okay, so yeah, what I hear you saying or yeah. proposing yeah. is the two olive trees and the mm-hmm. two lampstands yeah. are the are are this. One olive tree are the Gentiles who are grafted into God's family. Yeah. The other olive tree is the Israelites, the mm-hmm. Jewish people. The natural branches. The natural branches. Yeah. Who have come to faith in Christ. That's right. One lampstand is mm-hmm. the Gentile church, mm-hmm. and the other lampstand is the Jewish church. Yeah. 
Apparently. Okay, so first of all, yeah, that's interesting. It is. That was not the tradition that I was raised with, or no. maybe I wasn't paying attention, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Yeah. So what? It's interesting because, and a lot of people, like I said, a lot of people are fascinated with the identity because they're taught because of what they do. And this is where a lot of objections would come online, I'm sure, for people who hear, who hear something like this. And they'd be, well, there's no way that this church body, this, this, this body of believers, right, if we're the two witnesses, are we going to go out and uh, call fire down from, from heaven and do all these wonderful yeah, things? Yeah, okay, so that, that is a good point. Okay, right? if we're to take literally, literally so we have, a meta, we have some metaphors here. Yeah. Right, we're not going to all of a sudden be transmogified into lampstands and, and and trees. This is true. Okay, so, but if we're to take literally these supernatural acts that are coming out of the uh, the Jewish and Gentile people who have expressed faith in Christ, yeah. So, what's the significance of that? Are we all shooting lasers out of our eyes and like do we well, it get supernatural say lasers? But maybe. Uh, well. Do we get supernatural powers? It seems it seems that something to that effect occurs, and, okay. and 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 it's this way because God uses some interesting or John uses some interesting language. I, again, the the city of the, the where the temple is, right, Jerusalem. It's surrounded by by and and this may be the spiritual Jerusalem. This could be the mountain of assembly. This could be God's spiritual home. Because I also believe that there is physical geography and there is also spiritual geography, right? There, there are there is a spiritual realm that's just as real as you and I are here. There are angels. There are spiritual beings. There's all these other things that are going on that we just don't see. And what the description here is is that again that the the temple, uh, the holy city is trampled on by these evil people. And now I, I can't go into too much more detail because this is going to take hours, Mark. It's literally going to take hours. But as we read the Revelation, and as you go through it, you begin to see, again, trust me on this one, some of these reoccurring themes. This two witnesses' description is very interesting. These people come up at a very desperate time for the Holy City, and they start to reel out wrath, right? What else? What are they doing? They're, they're, why are they punishing? Why are they prophesying? They have power to turn the waters to blood. Well, that sounds like something Moses did. Strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. They have a limited time, and their time is three and a half years, according to what John tells us. And then what happens at the end of that three and a half years is the beast will come up from the abyss, attack them, overpower, and kill them. Okay. And, and the abyss, and who lives in the abyss, who the angel of the abyss is, and his identity, that is Satan. We're talking about the devil. We're talking about the same one who's chained up in the abyss, and the watchers and all these other beings that are chained up. Jude, Jude speaks about the angels chained and held in, or Peter speaks about the, the angels held in gloomy darkness, right? The angels chained in because uh, that are held in gloomy darkness. Okay, so there are other angels and other beings that have sinned against God, and they are being chained up and, and held in dark and gloomy places. Well, and this could be the abyss, right? But we definitely get this description of the abyss repeatedly in Revelation over and over again. 
And then it says that their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city. Now people are like, how can all of the Christian church be lying in the center of the city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was also crucified? Are we talking about Jerusalem? I think we must be. So how could all of these, these church peoples, how could all of their bodies be dead? So are we talking about a literal death here, or are we talking maybe about the Christian church being persecuted by the beast, which again is a reoccurring theme over and over again. Okay, Revelation. so that's interesting. Yes. So not literal death, but uh, probably a literal death. But I'm saying not not in mass, not everybody. Probably not all in one place at the same time, right? Let's just go with that. Like open because, season, open season on Christians, right? Right. The abyss, and he'll overpower and kill them. And for three and a half days, you know, people are going to be like, look on their bodies and the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them. All this kind of stuff happens. But after that time, the life of God entered them. They stood on their feet and they heard a loud, they heard a voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went, this is great. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. They went up to heaven in a cloud. This is the same way Jesus left earth. He Mm -hmm. left up, he went into a cloud. This is the same way that John tells us in Revelation 1-7 that Jesus will return. He'll return on a cloud. Imagery from Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming on a cloud. And there's other cloud imagery also in Revelation where we see Jesus sitting on a cloud, sticking his sickle down to harvest the earth, okay, and bring people up to him, I suppose, in a way. This is also very interesting imagery. And in that very other, there's a severe earthquake, all this bad stuff happens. And then we get this little tidbit at the end. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. What do you think the third woe is, Mark? Enlighten it's the, me. It's the seventh trumpet. Mm. Whenever you get to the seventh of the bowls, seals, whatever, that's the end. That is literally the end. So if you follow this through, the two witnesses show up. They show up near the end. Three and a half years, they have a ministry. They are also killed by the beast. We see, we see that story repeating itself. We see all of these stories repeating themselves through Revelation. We see them harvested off the earth. They go up into a cloud. They meet Jesus at a cloud. <laughs> Very interesting. And then John tells us that you know some, some other things happen on earth. There's an earthquake. 7,000 people were killed. People are terrified. You know of what's going on, and then John tells us that's the the, the second woe is past, the third woe is coming, and the third woe is the seventh trumpet. And the language that I like to read from this part is is that this is what the voices in heaven say: the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He will reign forever. In other words, God has come back; He is now the King, and He is reigning over the earth now. He is, he is, this is the same type of language that we're talking about at the end of the world, when God has defeated his enemies. Uh, and you'll see later in Revelation too, that God defeats the beast that comes out of the abyss. He kills him. He destroys him. The beast is there to, to gather the nations of the world into a large battle. Have you ever heard of the Battle of Armageddon? Oh, I have. Yeah. Well, if you're reading in the two witnesses up here at the top, you kind of get this picture of of the the city again is being surrounded by and trampled on by these Gentiles. Maybe that's maybe that has something to do with the beast. I don't know. But but anyways, 
there's a lot of things that are happening at this particular time. So the point is, is that you have these two witnesses, they show up on the scene, they're killed. And then the next thing that happens after that, they're harvested, they're, 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 they're brought up back to heaven. And then you're into the seventh trumpet. And we're kind of getting language again that's sort of talking about the end of the world. The final judgment is coming. God has returned and he is about to reign over the earth. I like the end, I like the end bit um, down in, in, in uh, 18, verse 18. It says, The nations were angry and your wrath has come, the time for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Boom, right? That's the end. That sounds like the end to me. And yeah, it does. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Am I making that up? No. I don't No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. Okay, so I grew up as a child going to a church that talked about uh, one day you'll just be uh, hanging out and right. all of a sudden, pa-pow. Pa-pow. Your clothes are left behind. Yeah. Nothing bad was happening before that. Maybe life was a little uncomfortable. And now you're with Jesus in heaven. Yeah. And then the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, they come down. They start holding court there in front of the wailing wall. Right. And people are like, what are you doing here? Right. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. You guys are a couple jerks. And mm-hmm. obviously, I'm underplaying the the scene. Uh, Just a little. They People try to attack them. They have supernatural powers. They lay people out. And then eventually, the right. Antichrist, yeah. which is what I was told was the beast, comes and kills them. They lay there for three days. Yeah. Birds pecking at them. But so, then they are resurrected. So you've had a whole story on this. Okay. Well, this is... Yeah. Well, at least how I grew up in the Assemblies of God. Right. I don't know if this was my version of the Assemblies of God or the uh, left behind version or just, you know, the tradition I was raised with, the right. interpretation. Yeah. This is this is different. And it is. and what you're saying is like, listen, it's it's probably not Moses and Elijah. It's 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 probably uh, these two churches, these two people groups. Uh, yeah. who trust in 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 the Lord mm-hmm. the witnesses aren't going to necessarily be all massacred in one place or not all going to be hanging out packed into a very tiny place and, probably not no. okay uh symbolic- we're all not going to be in Jerusalem yeah symbolically we are going to to not be in Jerusalem but symbolically we're going to be attacked and killed yeah. maybe not in in mass Maybe, but yeah, in maybe in some significant ways, right? And those that are killed after three days, and 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 I can imagine maybe there's some sort of uh, purge. Uh, yeah. Hey, listen, Christians, uh, they become a real problem, mm-hmm. and uh, you're able to uh, you have free license to purge Christians, right? right. And here's yeah. how you know who a Christian is and who a Christian isn't, right? Who right. who knows what's going on yeah. if this is true, and. Uh, we don't. We're not even dignified with burials. Um, maybe we're left out to rot, and then the Christians that were killed mm-hmm. are resurrected and caught up into heaven, which is imagery I remember growing up with. Right? You could you, you could even go First Thessalonians four seventeen with this if you like. I would like to. Can you recite that to me? 
well, First Thessalonians fourteen is the is the caught up in the clouds, and there right. we are, right? So, okay. but what happens to the? What was every Christian killed? What happens to those that weren't? Did they just get a free ride? Did they hitch a ride with the dead person? I, let 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 me read this to you real quickly. This is Revelation 13. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to execute its authority for 42 months. Hey, wait a second. I've heard that before somewhere. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people Hmm. and to conquer them. Oh. This isn't. This doesn't sound like a good time. This doesn't sound like a good time. But God's. Uh, I think the key thing to look at here is the beast is given power to wage war against God's holy people, and not only that, but He can conquer them. In other words, He can kill them. And this is a difference between what I like to see, what I like to call, and what I see in Revelation is the difference between the wrath of God, which falls on people who are marked, right, with the beast six six six, this type of thing the number of the beast, and and people who are marked with the seal of God, okay? The, seal, the people who are marked with the seal of God definitely, and I can point out many other places in Revelation, are persecuted by the beast, okay? And the wrath of God falls on the people who bear the mark of the beast. And this is very consistent. This this happens yes. and repeats in Revelation yes, over I and over. definitely... right heard that and made, been made acquainted with that. And so truth. and so to your point just quickly on this and and, and this is where you have, you have to pay attention when when you see this type of language in scripture. Whoever has ears let them hear. Well, something important's trying to be transmitted to you to you at this point. You need you need to pay attention to what it says. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. That's a pretty interesting exhortation that God, that uh, John gives at the end of that verse that I just read, where we learn about the beast killing. That This whole section sounds a lot like what we read in Revelation 11 in a way. And this is just one example. There's many more like this. But I said to you at the beginning, we have a repeating pattern, so... That's where I land on this at the moment. I'd like to tie a bow on this. You do that. Okay. And I'm a little slow. You can be. <laughs> um, what, for me right now, and any Christian or person seeking to understand Christianity, what is the significance of this to me now i and i know that's a little self-obsessed it doesn't always have to apply to me help me move me along in life but i seek to because i'm an individual who processes the world through the through through my experience and the lens of my cultural experience overall how how would you say brent how would you say to someone who was learning these things or pondering these things as succinctly as you can put it to make it simple for me, why does this matter to me? How does this change how I live, minister to the world, and pursue the mission that God gives me? I think that no matter what, as Christians, at some point you will face persecution, right? Whether it's 
maybe you're not killed for your faith in Jesus, but maybe it's what you go through in your day, right? Maybe this is people you want to be associated with. These types of things may maybe people close to you may persecute you for your beliefs, right? And I and I that's why I really like this last bit that calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. We are called to be faithful. We're called to be a light in this world. We are to bring the light into the world. That's our job. Okay, so I want to interject there because I think that's a great point. We can't fob off our responsibility on two supernatural beings that are going to show up and kind of make all this happen. It's on us. It is. If this is true, Mm -hmm. oh no, we're part of that end time story, whether we're still alive or not. Right. Right? Whether That's a great point. I, I have no idea. And I will never make the claim that I know where we are on whatever this eschatological time clock is. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't. I don't know, and I don't really care, quite honestly. But what I do care about is learning about this, understanding this, and seeing that it has a real application to us. We are called as believers to have an enduring faith and to answer the call which is to share the light that we have in us with the world and bring that light into As the world. As lampstands and olive trees. That's right. Up to the bitter end. Yes. Lampstands bring the light into the world. That's your job. We are the light of the world. God is in us bringing the light. We are the light. Bring the light. Don't. What's the song again? This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Yeah. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. That's the whole point. I thought you were going to do the DC Talk song. Oh, what is that? I want to be in the light. As you are in the light, I want to shine like the stars in the heavens. Yeah, Brent, this has been really good. I, I'm glad we were able to kind of bring it all together. Uh, I mean, did you get your bow? I did. I did. I got a nice bow. And really, for me, what it is, it's like, hey, man, connect my now to the then, the teleology of who God's people are and earth. I'm not taking responsibility for how things are all going to play out, but I'm connected. What I do today, how I encourage the church, how I raise my family, how I influence my community mm-hmm. is we're we're all headed yeah. in this direction. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts? None. I'm just I'm just glad that we we sh- this is what we should be doing. And 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 the subject matter is difficult. We can we can agree on that. People are not going to agree. People aren't going to like that's not right. You know, you're going to you can probably I can already feel the well, heat. Well, it would be boring right. if if everyone agreed with But that. it's just an idea. It's a thought and I'm really conscientious about using the Bible to define the Bible. I'm really I really want to look at how John came up with the imagery that he's seeing and you will find as you dig into this that John is really heavily relying on things that already existed in Scripture. He's going back to the Old Testament, and he's bringing that imagery back. He's repurposing imagery in the Old Testament, and he's using it to describe things he's seen and goes forward with that. And and Revelation is rife with this. So it's fun. Thank you. That was good. All right. All right. Until next time. Yeah. Adios. Bye.